the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast, episode 14. I am one of your hosts, Jim Hacking. And I am Tyson Mutrix, and I am recording from my basement at home because I had to stay at home to help out with the kids this morning. So if you hear babies in the background, there's a reason for it. So, And you are at your office? I'm at my office. I'm doing the recording today. Power washing is done. There's no one else power washing at your office, which is good. We could have a train go by. That's right. That's the beauty of recording. You want to introduce our topic? So today we're talking about our darkest moments, the time when we said to ourselves, why in the hell did I do this? Why did I think I was qualified to go out on my own? How in the world did I ever think that this was going to work? What a foolish decision I made and really question whether or not what we're doing makes a lot of sense. So I think we both have identified that moment for ourselves you know, they probably come at different points in our journey, but I thought we'd start off with you and then I can share mine. Yeah. And mine is actually interestingly from a criminal case. I have an idea that yours might be too, but I'm not positive. And so mine has nothing to do with experience, has nothing to do with me screwing anything up, has nothing to do with a malpractice claim, which I think most people may think that that's what a deepest, darkest moment may be. Luckily, I've never had to have that issue. Mine is I had a case. It was a pretty routine case in St. Charles County. And it was the defendant was, or my client was the son of a friend of mine. And it was pretty routine. The only only problem was, is that my client was black and my client was dealing heroin in St. Charles County. And I remember it was just a weird, I had a weird feeling going into the sentencing hearing. The offer from the state was pretty bad. They were offering, I think, 10 years And this guy literally had zero history at all. No speeding tickets, nothing. Had absolutely nothing. And so since they were offering 10 years, we did a blind plea, which, you know, is pretty standard. You do an open plea. And we, I fully expected this guy to get probation or at the very most, a very, very mild prison sentence. I mean, nothing, nothing major, but it's one of those cases where, and I know most attorneys don't do sentencing memorandums on for state cases. We do them on all our federal cases, but on state cases, the vast majority of attorneys do not do them, but I did them 
I did one on this case. I mean, just because I really believe this guy was, I mean, he, he had done a lot to try to help out the state on a couple of things. He had cooperated. It was a one-time thing. He had screwed up. He was right after the economy hit the crapper and he just needed some money. And so he made a huge mistake. Well, we go to sentencing and I remember the prosecutor standing up and the first words out of his mouth were, judge heroin is killing this community. And he literally backs up to the bar and he has to ask the judge for a moment and he starts to sort of tear up. And I was like, what is going on here? And then he goes on for 10 minutes to argue why my client should go to prison for 10 years. And I was just like, what am I missing here? So I stand up and luckily I'd prepared a sensing memorandum. So I was, I was equally prepared to get up and argue my case. So I argued for 10, 15 minutes about why he shouldn't get 10 years. And the reason why I guess it was 10 years is because there were multiple counts. And so they were, they, he wanted to stack them. So I sit down and I think, okay, you know, this went well, we'll be just fine. And it's one of those scenarios where I fully expected my client to walk out the courtroom with me. I didn't expect, really did not expect him to go to jail. And it's one of those things where the client knew that he could go to jail. We'd gone through all the scenarios. So it wasn't like I hadn't prepared him, but I remember the judge looks at my client and says, I guess I can't say his name, so I'll say Mr. Defendant. Mr. Defendant, you were dealing a lot of heroin and you deserve to go to jail. And he sends him to eight years in prison on a case where if this were across the river in St. Louis County, he would have gotten probation, hands down. And they would have offered him probation. I don't care what anybody thinks about you know, race, whatever. It's one of those cases where I firmly believe it was a matter of him being a black man in St. Charles County dealing heroin. And I know I may catch some flack about that, but I don't care. The person right before him, they had got caught with, I think, 50 pounds of marijuana transporting it from Colorado, and she got probation, which was totally ridiculous. It was literally the sensing right before hers. And she had a history. He had zero history. And it was one of those. Was she white? She was a white woman, yes. And so just there's an injustice, and there was, felt like there was very little I could do about it. I felt helpless. Like there's like nothing I could do. It was like, okay, we can appeal it. What grounds can we appeal it on? And it was appealed, but it didn't go anywhere. There was really nothing, really nothing we could do about it. So the judge hadn't sentenced anything out of the guidelines. I mean, he was, he did everything by the book and I'm not blaming the judge, I guess, but it was a crappy scenario. And so I remember holding his dad while he was crying. I mean, it was just like the worst moment. And I remember once everybody left, I remember going and sitting on a park bench and just like thinking like, what the hell? I mean, just, I couldn't believe it. It was just one of the, the most deflating moment I have ever experienced as an attorney because this guy who had just screwed up and I understand it's heroin and I understand the heroin is bad and all that. It's nothing like that. But this isn't one of those repeat bad actors that keeps doing it. It was a one-time thing. And if you looked at this guy's criminal history, if you met him, you would know that that's what it is. And so it just sucked and it was awful. And so there's no correcting it. You know, he's luckily he's out now and he's, he's a really good guy. He's, he's on the straight and narrow and, and his dad and I are, are good friends and, and everything. So it just, I don't know, it just, it was a bummer. It was, it was terrible. And did that cause you to second guess yourself? Oh, absolutely. I think going back, I know I did everything I could, but you definitely, whenever something like that happens, you go back. And you think about what could I have done differently? What did I screw up here? Is there something I could have changed, I, done to change this this outcome? You go through 
everything in your head. And I mean, I did that while I was sitting on that park bench. I was just sitting there. They're just like, what did I do here? Like, what what did I screw up? Because it just wasn't your typical sense on a case like that. It just doesn't, they just don't normally happen that way. What made it even worse is he was the son of a friend of mine. And just like, it made it that much worse. It was awful. And so, yeah, you. I think that's just part of the process. You go back through mentally and you think, okay, what could I have done to change this? And Really, there's nothing I could have done. I mean, we had done everything. We had really done everything when it comes to negotiation to try and get him the best deal possible, to try and get him the best outcome. And it just got a bad result. That sucks, man. What's yours? Well, you correctly predicted that mine, too, is related to a criminal case. I figured case, I knew so. which one it was. So, so when, we, when we started our little firm in 2007, the plan was to you know, help immigrants and do a lot of work for immigrants and handle many different kinds of cases for immigrants, not just immigration. Now, as things have grown and the cases or the clients have been sort of self-selecting, everything we do now is immigration. But there was a time about four years ago where I had a pretty big lawsuit against the city of St. Louis because they were arresting African-American men in the city for after misidentifying who the person was. So I had a client who got picked up. They said, you're Mr. X. And he said, no, I'm Mr. Y. And they didn't believe him. And he ended up sitting in jail for about two months. And so this lawsuit got a lot of press. And because of that press, one day we were contacted by a reverend in Washington, Missouri, who had befriended an inner city African-American young man named Cornell. And Cornell, he had been friends for about four months and Cornell had been attending his church. And through a certain set of circumstances, Cornell got asked to come in to see the police in the city of St. Louis about an armed robbery. And there had been a high profile murder in the city of a woman named Megan Boken, who was robbed for her iPhone in the middle of the day in the Central West End. And about 10 days before that murder, there was a similar iPhone robbery just on the other side of Lindell Boulevard with another white lady who was robbed at gunpoint with a gun. And Cornell had been asked to come in to talk to the police. And this reverend actually used to be a police officer. And so he thought he could talk his way out of any problems for Cornell. He brought him down to the police station and everything unraveled. And eventually the woman in the robbery that occurred 10 days before the murder picked Cornell out of a lineup and he ended up facing an armed robbery charge. And so we got a call because of the publicity we were getting on the other case to try to help Cornell. And not being a criminal defense attorney, we thought that if we just explained things to everybody, how we felt that this was a misidentification and that the actual person who did the armed robbery that Cornell was charged for was the person who killed Megan Boken. It seems sort of obvious to us. There's a pattern. There'd been about five of these robberies. These guys were on like a crime spree. And the person who ultimately pled guilty to killing Megan Boken named Keith Esters, he looked a lot like Cornell. So I'm not going to litigate the whole case, but we spent about 200 hours preparing this case for free. And we went to trial because the prosecutor would not listen to us. It was in the city of St. Louis. The circuit attorney's office is very strident and very forceful. And I think they didn't really care about justice. They just knew that they could get, they had a white woman pointing at a black man in the city of St. Louis and that that's all that they needed. And the trial judge, Robin Vinoy, assisted and abetted them in keeping any evidence of Keith Esther's prior crimes, wouldn't let me put on any evidence 
that Keith Esters had done these other crimes that he was implicated in in this particular robbery that he had told his girlfriend that he had gotten the victim's phone in a uh, robbery and that he had sold the phone. There was all kinds of evidence. We had overwhelming evidence, much more evidence than they had that Cornell did it. We had more evidence that Keith Esters did it. The judge, Robin Vinoy, excluded all of it. And my worst moment was the jury been out for about three hours. I hadn't been able to put on any of my evidence. I still thought we had a chance of winning. The sun was setting. Cornell came in. It was supposed to be this glorious moment of lawyer Jim having, and Jennifer, my old associate, had done all this work to show that Cornell was wrongly accused. And the jury came back guilty. And it was like a kick to the nuts. And they took Cornell out. The crowd was sort of shouting at the judge. It was sort of a, a, a very surreal experience. There was a lot of emotion. A lot of people from the church out in Washington had come to the entire trial. And that was sort of the start of a really bad month for me because, like I said, I'd mostly done civil work. And as you know, Tyson, because you do criminal defense work, you have to file a notice of appeal in criminal cases within 10 days. And I filed it on the 29th day. Yeah, they treat that rule pretty hard and fast rule. So I had to recuse myself from the case. I couldn't handle the appeal because of my own mistake. And luckily, Cornell got a new attorney and they were able to, even on the plain error standard, get the conviction overturned because Judge Robin Vinoy had refused to allow me to have any of that evidence. And so Cornell was released the circuit attorney did not retry him, and he spent about two and a half years in jail because the circuit attorney refused to look at the evidence in an objective way, and they were trying to cover for the police department, which hadn't solved this robbery, which might have prevented the murder of Megan Boken. So in any event, obviously, I'm still worked up about it, and if you want to read up on it, you can certainly look for Cornell's case. But it was a horrible time for me. It was a really dark couple of months. I was very upset, and I was questioning myself about a lot of things. But the one thing it did is it fueled my determination that we needed to focus on just one thing. We couldn't dabble in other things. We couldn't try other practice areas. And the one thing that I learned, I mean, I learned a lot coming out of that experience. Um, I learned about how race works in the city. I've always sort of known that, but I learned how the circuit attorney works. And I also learned that judges can make mistakes and might not necessarily care about justice and just want to uphold what they've done. And so I decided to get out of the litigation business altogether. We stopped doing any kind of litigation. In fact, I just settled my last civil litigation case this week. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And so now we're all in on immigration. And I think it was a great cauterizing experience that just helped me cut away from that and to focus on the things that we're really good at. And so it was a life-changing experience. It's something that will stay with me forever. And I think that I really learned a lot of valuable lessons. And number one is to refer things out. And that sometimes I get caught up with my emotions and with my wanting to help people and my wanting to do good for people. And that sometimes that as a business owner and a law firm, those things don't always match. So did Judge Vinoy give a reason why she wouldn't let it in? Yeah, there's a doctrine in Missouri, you know you know this better than I do, but in Missouri, and I think in most other cases, on television, they always act like you can, you know, plan B, you can just point to someone else. Right. And the law says that there has to be some evidence connecting the person that you want to point the finger to. And the judge just early on decided that she wasn't going to have a sideshow. She sort of bought the prosecutor's 
line about how you know we can't try this other case we got to keep out all the megan boken stuff we can't let hacking mention the name of keith esters and she bought into it and then she just stuck to her guns i after about the third day of trial i made a really strong push to let her or to ask her to let me get into this again and she dug in her heels she gave me a little bit of of evidence but for the vast majority of it she kept out very interesting because it sounds like you had that plenty of evidence to tie it in to, to bring in that other person. So she just dug in and said, no way. Yeah. I frankly think she was scared of the circuit attorney's office. Interesting. Was she newer at the time or had she been around? She'd been a judge for about five or six years. Okay. She's still on, she's still on the bench. Yeah, I, I can tell you're definitely, it kind of gets in your crawl. I, I imagine you DQ her anytime you had her next. Well, I'm never going to have her again because right. I'm only immigration. Right. So it's a lesson. I think that's a lesson in, you know, maturity and in growth. And, you know, obviously I learned a lot and I think that there's always something to learn. There's always something to do better and there's always ways to improve. And, and that can be in how you handle your practice. It can be in how you handle yourself as an attorney. And, you know, I think that I have a strong bent towards justice and I, and I, I feel like with immigration, we're doing important work. We're helping protect a lot of people who need it. And I think that, that that's important. And I think that there's a lot I can do within this practice area and I don't have to necessarily take things on that are sort of monumental like that. We were just trying to help Cornell help the Reverend and get the right outcome. But frankly, nobody listened to us. The system's not set up. I don't think to help an innocent man. And people will say, Oh, well, you know, everything worked out in the end, you know, eventually he got out. Well, yeah, but he spent two and a half years in jail under the fear of a 10 or 14 year jail sentence. So, you know, there was no justice here. Yeah. And I think part of it was who was on the other side of your case. Cause I will tell you this, there's a lot of great prosecuting attorneys in the state, ones that really do care about justice. But I think, and I don't know who tried the case against you, but that attorney may have even, you know, cared about justice, but that office as a whole, luckily there's going to be a turnover and Jennifer Joyce is leaving and it, things hopefully will change. I don't, I've heard that they may not, but I don't know. But in my opinion, I agree with you that office, it's about wins and losses. It's not about justice. And I think that that's something that's often overlooked. I'm going to give some big kudos to Jefferson County because there's a recent uh, case about basically amount of stolen property. Basically, the Supreme Court had ruled that the way the statutes were uh, set up, then there really can't be a felony. It's basically just a misdemeanor. The amount doesn't matter. And so what Jefferson County just recently just started doing is on, on probation violation cases where people are on probation for that, they basically file a motion saying the judge can do whatever they want. But according to the Bezel case, I think it's B-E-Z or Basil or Bezel, I think it's B-E-Z-E-L-L, then basically it could be terminated. It's essentially what it is. That's not what it, exactly what it says, but basically the judge has the power to do that. That is a prosecutor's office showing that they care about justice because a law, there's a change in the law. Some prosecutor's offices don't get that. They just care about wins and losses. And so I want to give kudos to, to Jefferson County. I think St. Louis County and St. Charles County, sometimes they get some, some flack and they get some negative attention, especially after the Michael Brown thing. But I'll tell you, both of those offices are handled extremely well. I think that they're, they do care about justice in both of those areas. But when you get to the city of St. Louis, it just... For some reason, I think that the, the crime has really jaded them, and so they get they get caught up in that. And so that's I think you learned a valuable lesson, and I think you know how to move forward and how to correct things. And I think that 
now that there's this shift in that office, hopefully someone from that office is listening to this and maybe that they can start to change things. I think that's, we learn about these lessons and we move on and we change, we, we get better. That's how it works. I think that's a lesson to take away from this. Yeah. And another one for me with Cornell, especially, but I see it in the deportation context too, is, you know, once you get your hand in the machine, it's really hard to get out of the machine. You know, once the process starts towards you, it's really hard to sort of turn the wheels back and protect people. It's just, it's just tough. Um, I'll take you at your word about the prosecutors. I do know a lot of prosecutors who are, who are good, well-intentioned people. I do think a lot of times they get caught up in their winning percentages and wanting to be tough, but I'll take you at your word for that. Yeah. And I deal with them more. So I do know, I mean, I've, they're the prosecutors that get it and there's the ones that don't. And I'm not going to mention the ones that don't, but there's the ones that really do. They say, you know what, this is kind of ridiculous. And so they'll work something out with you. And if it's a case where the case should be dismissed, they'll, they'll dismiss the case. I mean, so there really are the good ones. I will say this and feel like we are really coming down on the circuit attorney's office because we are. That office pisses me off, but they have no discretion at the lower levels. And that's where the big difference is. It all comes from the top. And they've got these, you know, round tables, committees, whatever the hell they call them. And it all comes from the top. And these are the people that are on the front lines taking the heat from defense attorneys, from judges. And so they have no discretion. They can't make those deals in the courtroom. They can't work it out because they're they're being told from up top, no, you got to pursue it. So that's the big problem. And honestly, if someone from the circuit attorney's office gets pissed off about me saying that, I don't care because something needs to change well, it's there. True. It's absolutely true. But, all right. Well, we've been on our soapbox. That's right. It's supposed to be about law <laughs> practicing, but I think this all sort of ties into it. I think that, you know, as business owners, we have operations to run and we have to make good decisions. And frankly, taking a pro bono case that ends up taking 200 hours of your time over the course of a year and a half is certainly from a business standpoint, not the best. Right. Pro bono works good doing the case like that. Not so much. I would have told you not to do that case. But either way, I mean, listen, in the end, the right outcome came. So do you have your hackings hack of the week? Given the fact that both of our cases touched on the issue of race and African-American defendants, I want to tell you about an amazing book that I just started based off a Facebook recommendation by my buddy Arindam Carr, a great attorney at Brian Cave who does a lot of pro bono work himself, works with the United Way. He volunteers teaching at a school. Anyway, Arindam and his wife were talking about a book called Just Mercy by a guy named Brian Stevenson. This is a fellow who's worked down in the South with African-American prisoners facing the death penalty, and he's written sort of a memoir, and you will love it, Tyson. I'm about a fifth into it, and it's fantastic. It's called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Okay. I'll have to check that out. My tip of the week, Tyson's tip of the week, is not a product. It's not a service. It's nothing else. Here's my tip. I met with an attorney last week who is a listener of this podcast, and I think he's a phenomenal guy. Actually, I'm going to mention his name. I think he's awesome. His name is Matt Jett. He's a younger kid. What up, Matt? What's up, Matt? So I uh, met with him, and he is a go-getter. He's one of those guys where if he sits down, he asks you a couple of questions, he goes and does it. And so my tip is if you want to do something, go do it. If you want to do podcasting, go do it. If you want to do videos, go do it. Don't say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and then never do it. Just do it. Jump in and stop waiting. Stop planning. Just do it. And I'm really proud of Matt because Matt, as soon as he got out of law school, he took risks. He took marketing risks. He's one of those guys who wanted to start his firm out of law school, 
which obviously I always encourage people not to do. I encourage you to work. But however he did it, and he's done well for himself. And so if you want to do something, do it. Don't tell people you're going to do it. Do it. That's my tip. Awesome. Well, you have to have him on the show. Absolutely. And I think he'd be happy to be on here. So, Speaking of, yes. when are you going to line up some guests for uh, us? We had them lined up. We've got two guests, someone from a marketing company and their branding company, and then someone from a personal injury firm out in New York. So I think we've got a couple really good guests. And then I've still got to talk to, to John Fisher. I would really like to get him on this podcast. I think he'll do it. Um, but I need to talk to him, but we've got some really good guests coming up. Well, I'm looking forward to, in about two weeks, I'm going to go up to John's mastermind in Chicago. So maybe I can hit him up for a You'll show. You'll learn a lot. That's a really good mastermind. That's when I did last year. So we'll have a lot of fun. All right, bud. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Sounds good. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, content. go to MaximumLawyer.com. Maximum Have a great week and catch you next time.